Shut up and sit down. Hello strangers and welcome to a very special episode of Strangers in a Cinema. I'm with your co-host Paul Anderson here with co-host Pete Wall. Pete, what have we got in store for listeners on this episode? Uh, for, for us personally, Paul, we have in store absolute agony, but for the listeners, hopefully <laughs> the complete opposite of that. Because of course, as you said, we're sitting down to try to thrash out our top 10 films of the entire decade, which has been an arduous task on my end and I would imagine on your end as well for this one. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I've kind of sat there in front of this list, and you know, we promised this episode, I think, probably three or four weeks ago, we're like, we're definitely going to have a Films of the Decade episode out soon, so yeah, it's taken that long to kind of find the time and sit down, and then I was just like, yeah, I've done the list now, and I was like, but have I done the list? And then the more I've the more I've looked at the list, things have jumped around in order, things have dropped off the list, things have jumped back on the list, things have dropped off the list, and so on, and so on, and so on, and I'll be honest, it wasn't until about... 40 minutes ago where I just said right fuck this this is my list I'm happy with the, this list let's let's have the episode let's do it so yeah it's taken a while Pete I'll be honest I'm, I'm with you I'm with you buddy it was tougher than I thought it would be <laughs> yeah yeah very much so I mean even today coming into recording I'm looking at this list of 10 from my long list which is currently at about 40 and um and I feel like I could take a sort of cross-section anywhere on that 40 and happily defend those as the 10 best films of the decade so what you'll get is a list and we can't promise it will be any kind of definitive list and of course as with any of the lists that we do on this show it is personal so you can get angry about what we've chosen but you've got to understand that everyone's going to have their own take everyone's going to have films that hit them on a personal level more than other films that maybe passed them by or maybe just didn't have the impact that they were expecting or that they hoped for so yeah we'll do our best to be true to ourselves and I think that's about all we can really promise other than talking about some really really excellent and I would say mostly consensus excellent films over the course of the next well probably just under an hour I guess on, on this one it might be a bit shorter than a regular episode because we're just going to focus on this top 10. Paul, I want to ask you then, like, other than the personal thing that I've mentioned, how did you go about choosing what finally made the list? Like, were there particular metrics you used? Are you trying to get something from each year? Like, what, what did you go at? Or what angle did no, you I come mean, at it from? I, I mean, so initially when I started this, I kind of put the list together and then I found that it was very, very weighted towards probably films of the last two or three years, which is, you know, more, I suppose the time in which we've been doing the podcast, I've been paying a lot more attention to what's come out and that kind of thing. So to start with, when I put my first list together, I was just like, this is basically a top 10 films of the last five years, not of the last 10 years. So it was like, back to the drawing board straight away with that. So then I thought, actually, well, what, what has jumped out of me? What stayed in my mind? And I think, and initially you kind of think, okay, well, do I need to look at what's been what's been critically acclaimed? I'm like, well, maybe I should do that. Maybe I shouldn't do that. And I'm like, no, I won't do that. So for me, these are films that have absolutely stayed in my mind, stuck with me. Um, not necessarily. Some of these may not have made even films of the year list when we did the, the films of the year podcast for those years. Although I think in this case, I think they probably did. Um so yeah, it was just the things that stuck with me, films that I've, for the most part, watched more than once um, and have maintained their high level of quality in my eyes on second, third, some in some cases, fourth and fifth viewings. I think that's important to me. That, for me, is how, is how you know whether a film truly stands the test of time. It might blow you away on initial viewing and then you might might leave you slightly colder on on following viewing so that's kind of it's kind of where I stand with it so it's yeah it's basically just very memorable films that have stuck in my mind um and favorites really so Pete how about you 
Yeah, very similar to that, man. Like, th because of what you said there about rewatches, there are a couple of films that spring to mind where they, if I'd have done this without rewatching those movies, they would have definitely had a place on the top 10 and maybe they've fallen away a little bit on rewatch. But that's not entirely fair because I'm someone who's chronically bad at rewatching things, at least more than, you know, the, the one rewatch. So for some films on the list, I'll have only seen them once and they stand in my mind so uh, such strong contenders based off one viewing in one time in one environment um so it's not entirely an like even playing field i guess for all the movies and i can't really do too much about that other than hold my hands up and say that you know like like any list this one is probably flawed but um i am really looking forward to the films that i've finally locked down into the top 10 and i can only reiterate what you said really which is that these are films that stand the test of time for me, not because somebody else said this is the best movie, the best technical achievement, the best set of performances, the biggest name director necessarily, just because they impacted me in a particular way. Or maybe I watched them at a time where they really spoke to something that was going on in my life or in my head. And I think with uh, cr critiquing movies in general, that's the direction that I tend to come at things from, is that I don't think we watch films in a vacuum. I think we watch films as a part of our own human experience. And so a lot of the things that I tend to value maybe higher than others or maybe value lower than others, it will just be a reflection of the fact that we're all different individuals and we've all been going through different things over the course of usually a year when we do our end of year list. But in this case, 10 years, man. A lot has happened in 10 years to both you and I. I mean, going back 10 years, I'd never met you before, Paul. So, uh, you know, that, that puts this into perspective. You lucky, really. lucky man. <laughs> yeah, that, that puts the, the list into perspective. Is like we hadn't even dreamed of, of starting a show or reviewing stuff or, or chatting together on these podcasts. So, you know, a, an awful lot has happened. In fact, 10 years ago, um, I was living in a different continent. What were you doing at the start of this decade Paul I was at you know I was belatedly at university doing my film degree believe it or not oh, of course yeah getting yeah. getting the ball rolling with this whole thing really. absolutely so, yeah without without that we wouldn't be sitting here so yeah I absolutely think 10 true. years was what two years before we met possibly yeah yeah that sounds about right yeah, yeah. so so the the sort of genesis sort of birth and growth of strangers in a cinema amongst many many other life events has, has happened within that 10-year frame so yeah interesting to do a list like this but but excruciating at the same time i can make no bones about that now i did want to do the thing that i like to do before we do a top 10 when i feel sort of bad about leaving things out which is go through some um also rans some uh, honorable mentions some you know considered movies that maybe haven't made the final cut but before i do that have you got any in particular paul that like really jump out at you as films that you would have loved to put on the list but just didn't quite make it uh, yes, I mean what I've tried to do with this list as well is I've tried, although I'm, I'm making mo mo uh, alterations to this list as we're speaking actually because I've just realised I've left something massive off of it. So yeah, <laughs> um, you're not alone there in struggling with this now. It's getting more and more painful. Um, yeah, I've tried to keep it to a single film per director. In all honesty, um, so on that basis, on that basis, there's certain films that I, I think are incredible. But for the list of keeping the for the sake of keeping this interesting to talk about. Um, 
Sicario doesn't quite make the list, although had there not been another Denny Villeneuve film on this list, it would certainly be there. Um, what else doesn't make the list? The Handmaiden narrowly misses out from Park Chanuk because I think that's an incredible, incredible piece of work. Um, what else have I missed? What else misses the cut? The Witch just misses out um, just because of the caliber of some of the other films on this list, um, as does Hereditary. Um, but I think it's been it's been a cracking decade. I think There's, those are some. Pete, have you got any any more there? Yeah, yeah. Having done that big build-up, I've managed to just lose the list that I have on my <laughs> phone of all the things that were also rounds and contenders. So, yeah, I can only say that um, I know the likes of, um, well, two uh, Lars von Trier movies in Melancholia and The House That Jack Built have both missed out. Two um, Abbas Kiristami films in Certified Copy and uh, Like Someone in Love have missed out, which are both enjoyed massively um actually one that that came to mind particularly when we were talking in the intro is martha marcy may marlene which is a film that i couldn't stop talking about on the podcast at least in the earlier years of this show and has just drifted a little bit having rewatched it now two or three times since not to say that it's anything other than a phenomenal achievement in terms of it being early work from the director and an amazing performance from Elizabeth Olsen but uh, yeah it's just fallen away a little bit but you know I could list like I say 30 and I'm sure you could too 30 40 other movies that didn't make the list let's not do that let's focus on the actual list itself and let's get started what we're going to do Paul um, as you know and as we've agreed is that we're going to go 10 through 6 then we're going to take a break have a little breather and then we're going to come back to talk a bit more in detail about five to one and that will be the show for today so do you want to kick this off or do you want to go second i don't mind diving in first it's all good uh, so number 10 as i said we're counting down from 10 to one uh, number 10 for me is a film that we did a very long episode of this podcast about many many moons ago pete um this is this is christopher nolan's interstellar from 2014 um i know there's some criticisms that can be leveled at christopher nolan and you know they're not necessarily incorrect criticisms he can struggle with emotion at times uh, his scripts can be clunky at times and this film certainly has its share of the sort of signature christopher nolan issue should we say however we're talking about films that stay with me in terms of seeing this in imax it absolutely blew me away in terms of its the visuals are fantastic i love how christopher nolan has brought brains back to big budget hollywood filmmaking and i think that's incredible and i think without nolan you wouldn't have someone like denny villeneuve making the films that he's making today um and just yeah just sci-fi a thinking man sci-fi is one of my favorite genres and when it's this well executed by someone whatever you think of of Nolan's abilities is sort of an ability to evoke emotions out of characters and this kind of thing. I don't think anyone can argue that in terms of technical prowess, Nolan is one of the finest directors working today. Pete, I'm not sure this will make your list, but I, I don't think you disliked it, if I remember rightly. But. No, no, I, I I can't really disagree with anything that you've said, because, yeah, you've already raised the point, which was, I think, my main criticism of the movie, which has been a Nolan criticism about maybe the, the slight bloodlessness or lack of emotion in, in some of his stuff. But um, having said that, uh, I know it's had some criticism or some critics, I guess, but the way in which he tied the... Um, the kind of longing for connection, familial connection, like across space and time with that 
really quite um, out there sequence with floating behind the bookcase towards the end of the movie showed that Christopher Nolan is a director that I came to love, not just because he makes these, you know, um, Rube Goldberg machine, you know, machine-tooled things that all fit together beautifully, but also because he is someone who's capable of doing something that is surprising or is challenging or is intellectually stimulating. Certainly the latter of all of those is true of of Nolan's stuff. So, yeah, I really liked it. And I remember, you know, it will come up a lot, I think, when we talk about films of the decade. I remember very distinctly seeing this for the first time in the IMAX and like getting that overwhelming feeling of like a director who's absolutely on top of the capabilities of a technology like that and I know Mm. you know that that might sound like damning it with faint praise to say like oh it makes good use of IMAX but that's a massive thing when you have such a spectacle in the cinema and the director knows the audience and knows what will move the audience or make the audience really remember that experience that's hugely to its credit so yeah I remember it very fondly and I probably should go back to it I think I've only seen it twice um so I think it's a strong pick for sure yeah no and I said the other the other element there's so many other elements to love about it as well I think the, the like the elements when they visit the different planets and the, the the way that time passes differently uh when someone's on the planet and someone was not on the planet like the just the attention to detail in Stellar I think is is absolutely fantastic and as you said the special effects work is incredible and I know it blew me away hence why it's my number 10 my 10th favourite film of the decade is Christopher Nolan's Interstellar Pete your number 10 oh okay the agony begins from my end uh, right I'm just going to come out with it number 10 for me is uh, a film from 2016 this is Andrea Arnold's film American Honey I, this has moved in my list everywhere from about 3rd to 15th um, and it's landed in the end at number 10 I've seen it 3 or 4 times now so I feel fairly comfortable with my um, gauge on the movie but of course this is this movie that does this great job of sort of encapsulating the um, late character capitalist malaise of young people and the difficulties and sort of social climbing and social clawing that takes place amongst a group of not even like they become friends but like disparate kind of um, left behind fringe of society kids who end up traveling around in this merry band led by Riley Keough listening to sort of commercial hip-hop music and um, also sort of provoked and pushed by the character played by Shia LaBeouf to sell magazine subscriptions as much as they can to as many people as they can mostly also fringe people uh, truck drivers driving in the middle of nowhere uh, rich cowboys driving their their convertible through the desert at one point Um, it's this film that does a really good job I think of um, g- delivering like a sort of universal message uh, for anybody can relate to the idea that you don't exactly know where you're going but you're trying to do the best to get there anyway um, and at the same time very very um, specifically focusing in on a particular set of people in a particular set of circumstances and for all of that stuff it's just got a banger of a soundtrack uh, it whips through this this movie runs two hours 43 minutes if you told me it was hour and 43 minutes I would believe you because I was so wrapped up in it like when the journey the road trip comes to its sort of conclusion comes to its end I could have spent another two hours with these people and that doesn't mean these are wonderful people I mean some of them are pretty scummy or pretty uh, broken and damaged people but it's credit to the director and what Andrew Arnold does with the movie that you just want to be around them and you want to know what's going to happen next and where our lead uh, played by Sasha Lane where she's going to end up and if she's going to find the happiness that she's sort of looking for throughout you've also got like motifs all the way through it of um, bugs that are trapped 
that are just trying to clamber up onto a surface or ascend up a web. And it's just such a unified vision that Andrea Arnold had and brought to screen that it had to be on the list. And I and I feel kind of terrible that it's not higher than 10th because I loved it just so much. And I still <laughs> listen to the soundtrack now and I've got the Blu-ray and I'll re-watch it. So yeah, it's very much cemented in my top 10 of the decade. Anyway, it's American Honey. And Paul, obviously, I know that you like this movie a great deal as well. Um, I don't know if it's on your list. You don't need to tell me that. Uh, do you want to say anything else about it right now? Uh, not right now, because it might be somewhere on my list. <laughs> it might be. We're not giving anything away. <laughs> it might anything well be. Yeah. I'm not giving anything away yet, but yes, it may well be sitting on my list somewhere. Um, right, my number nine then is. Oh, this is. The, you're right. This is hard because things keep jumping into my mind now. But I've, I've committed to what's on the piece of paper in front of me. Uh, this is Bong Joon Ho's Snowpiercer from 2013, uh, starring Chris Evans, uh, Jamie Bell, Tilda Swinton, uh, among others. Um, I think John Hurt, John Hurt's here as well, Ed Harris. Uh, yeah, this is one of those films that was incredibly hard to find, and when I did finally get hold of it, it did not, it did not disappoint me in the slightest. Um, it was my, it was my introduction to Bong Joon Ho, in fairness, as a director, um, and I think this is a, a brilliant example of someone who. Some you could say some, I suppose, in a similar way to Nolan and Villeneuve, which come up later on. He crosses art house sensibilities with sort of with blockbuster filmmaking to incredible to incredible accomplishment. So, the premise of Snowpiercer is it's set in a science fiction based future uh, where a failed climate change experiment has killed life has killed all life on the planet except for a lucky few who were on a train called Snowpiercer. The temperature has dropped to below freezing around the world. So basically, the world is the world is a, is, is polar temperatures essentially. Um, except that it's not all it's not all um, sunshine and roses. There is a new class system is built up on board the ship on board the the train, and the train has essentially become a microcosm for society as we know it. Um, it's a brilliant premise, I believe, based on a graphic novel which I haven't read, but with you know with Bong Joon Ho's flair for visuals, um, it's just incredible. Like it, it really really stuck with me. The set pieces are imaginative. The the characters in it are really really well put together. Uh, Tilda Swinton's performance is is something else here. She's clearly having a great time. Um, and Chris Evans and Jamie Bell are actors who I, who I respect tremendously so um, yeah if you haven't got to this yet it's an incredible piece of sci-fi and it really really stay with me I hope the TV series does this some kind of justice um, I'm not so sure that it will but yeah you know as, as the film that introduced me to Bong Joon-ho then uh, yeah it's deserves that place he's arguably made better films this decade but this is the one that's this is the one that kind of introduced me to him so that's why it's sitting where it's sitting pete any thoughts yeah i, I love that it's on your list because it hasn't made mine although again easily could do um it's, <laughs> yeah it's wonderful man because i guess i came to bong joon ho like a little bit earlier um and you know i've never mentioned it on the show but having lived in korea for a little bit uh, it was obviously a film filmmaker that i was familiar with from like memories of murder and and the host and stuff like that but um coming to this movie and having this kind of slight trepidation about uh, Bong like working in both Korean language and English because uh, obviously this that sort of transitional movie for him uh, now obviously has, has gone back to his native Korean for Parasite but more on that in due course um, yeah it just works really well like way better than I thought it would honestly because mm. like I say you know if anybody's seen uh, My Blueberry Nights for example and um, has sort of torn their hair out at what happened to Wong Kar Wai there uh, having had so much affection for him and I still do yeah it, it, a, a, a triumph and one of those movies that again whips through at a pace and is 
genuinely thrilling like in the realest sense of the word is thrilling like a thrill of an experience but like you pointed out quite rightly has this very serious set of issues on its mind um, about not only Korean society or American society but sort of the larger issues that people face around the world in terms of in imbalance of uh, financial means and stuff like that so yeah go for like a great time and stay for all it's got to say about that stuff so yeah Snowpiercer is amazing man and I'm really glad it's on your list good yeah absolutely and I think you make an interesting point about the, the kind of English language debut of successful foreign language directors it's not always it's not always the, the best thing I think you know um, the guy did Nightwatch to Berberman Toff he did Wanted which wasn't great and uh, there's and um, uh, Gavin Hood who came over from doing Totsie did Wolverine Origins so yeah I see where you, I absolutely see where you're coming from that one so it's another valid point when, when a director comes from another country to do, to direct uh, English language more Hollywood focused films it's not always a success so yeah it's a good it's a good shout but yeah number nine is Snowpiercer from 2013 so you mentioned foreign language movies and in at number nine for me is a film from 2011 a separation from the director and writer Asghar Fahadi um, this is one of those that you hear people um, all over, you know, lists and, and circles rattling on about as being this sort of incredible drama to the point that I think it might even be off-putting because it might make people feel like, a, you know, it's a it's a chore, it's sort of expected. Don't, don't believe any of that, uh, like, sort of voice inside your head because this is this wonderful piece of um, writing and direction from Asghar Fahadi, this uh, Iranian filmmaker, where what he's managed to do is give people not only inside Iran, obviously, but all over the world, access to a very specific set of circumstances, which again, I guess, is something I mentioned with American Honey. And you've got a couple who are going through, as you might imagine from the title, a separation. And there's a situation that arises without giving too much away with the home help in their house um, and a sort of accusation of wrongdoing. And rather than in, within our own society where these things would be dealt with in a slightly different way, they have to go to a sort of um, mediator, uh, a religiously affiliated mediator. And we have sequences inside this meeting room of... Um, a sort of growing emancipation, uh, a sort of independence and power on the part of the uh, female in the couple who's having to fight her own corner in a society that isn't massively accepting of the idea of a separation. This is uh, Leila Hatami, I should say, the, the actress here. Um, it is just just a, a joy like one of those where when we've had or when I've had the opportunity on the show just to talk about like grown up drama which comes up quite often I think with our podcast um, there are others that I could have picked for the list um, 45 years comes to mind with Charlotte Rampling as well as a great example of sort of grown up drama I, I would say uh, and this one very much so and I think it was one of the top contenders and that's why it made it onto the list um, yeah it just like rich and human and engaging and intelligent and kind of heartbreaking at times and yeah a separation is fantastic that is my number nine I still the the amount of times you've talked about it on the show, I still haven't watched it and I still own it. So maybe before the end of the year, I will get around to watching that, Pete. So I need I need to get on that. So thank you. Uh, my number eight, and weirdly enough, I think this is probably the lowest critically rated film on this list, and that surprises me. Uh, my number eight is American Mary from 2012, directed by Jen Soska and Sylvia Soska, or no, otherwise known as the Soska Sisters. Um, this is a 
kind of rape revenge well it's definitely a body horror rape revenge body horror film i would guess um and surprisingly i think it surprised me a little bit sitting so high on the list as it does because it's one of although there's been some great horror films this year and i, I name checked some of them earlier this is one of the ones that's truly stuck with me it stars Catherine isabel who i think should be a much bigger star i think she's a great actress um as a medical student who gets invited to a party with some senior um surgeons uh it goes south they're assholes essentially um they drug her and rape her and she goes about getting her revenge but in the meantime while she's plotting her revenge she is doing black market body modification surgery on people um so it's as dark and creepy and as fucked up as you might expect um and i just it it's for me it's just a incredibly entertaining genre piece that doesn't put a foot wrong in terms of the fact it, it's very very tense the set pieces are superb and Catherine isabel's support performance is is fantastic and i've got a lot of time for the Soska sisters i'm very excited for their i think it's rabid they've remade the cronenberg one actually um very excited for that um they even did a good job on the see no evil sequel the, the sequel starring kit the wrestler kane but yeah american mary i think is one of the if if we were to do underrated films of the decade i think american mary would, would be high up that list for me um yeah i won't i won't give away too much more than that about it but if you are a fan of horror certainly a fan of creepy fucked up body horror then american mary is a film you should be looking at post haste that that is a great idea for a list maybe something like top 10 films that are much better than people say they are or something like that it's it's one for the future for sure i don't know if you constrain us to of the entire decade again or if we (laughs) constrain is the wrong word like if we have to take in an entire decade i might have a panic attack so um (laughs) yeah we'll 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 do some sort of limited list like that in the future i reckon nice and i still haven't seen that movie it's it's like i i'm banging on about a separation and you said you haven't caught up with it yet and then you've talked about american mary so many times yeah (laughs) even I I believe it's currently sitting on my TiVo because I recorded it off film four or something at some point but I haven't got around to it so I absolutely have to now that it's okay well we're both on the naughty list for that one then so it's fine (laughs) absolutely um yes so for me at number eight as we move swiftly along I have got another foreign language film actually it wasn't planned it's just happened this one from 2015 is right now wrong then from Korean director Sang Soo Hong or Hong Sang Soo I should say um this one is one that I've only caught up with because of the movie platform. So, like, let's get another plug in for that because we never talk about it on our program. But um, <laughs> they do such a good job of like curating things by directors that you're already interested in. I would say. Uh, so, yes, what you have here in uh, right now, wrong then, is a man who goes to a small film festival in South Korea because one of his films is going to be displayed there. That's a thematic link with another film in my list, actually, as it goes. Um, and when he arrives there he is alone and he is kind of whiling away the time uh during uh the downtime between actually going to these sort of film adjacent events and he meets a young woman and they have an interaction and that interaction plays out in a certain way and then in the middle of the film there's a cut and we have a new title card and the events play again So we've essentially got the same film repeated with a break in the middle, except that the two halves aren't the same. The two halves are separated by a small change in the way that the man deals with the world, um, is all I really want to say about Right Now, Wrong Then. And so the film is interested in how the slight um, re-augmentation of your sort of input into the world 
can make this big difference. And it's not some sort of saccharine, like, eat, pray, love-ish thing about, I don't know, self-actualization and realizing that the world is beautiful and full of butterflies. Far from it. This is drinking soju until you uh, inexplicably and unwantedly strip naked in front of people that you've just met. It's that movie. It's not It's not a kind of Hollywoodized version of the way that, that it, events take place. It is just an absolute gem. Like, uh, Hong Sang-soo is this incredibly gifted filmmaker in terms of making sort of quiet films about individuals, often quiet individuals, trying to um, find their way, trying to wrestle with their problems, trying to wrestle with their sort of own identity. And I think Right Now, Wrong Then just is an exercise in, in near flawless filmmaking, as far as I'm concerned, about doing what it sets out to do in an almost perfect way. Um, so yeah, that's why it's got onto this list at number eight is right now, wrong then. Number seven from me uh, is a film you've mentioned previously. It's American Honey from Andrea Arnold, uh, released in 2016. I can't really add much to what you've said about it, Pete, aside from the fact this, uh, for me, was probably the first time I was, was genuinely blown away by a Shia Booth performance. I thought he, he was fantastic in this. Um, and as you alluded to with what you were saying, the fact that when you when you kind of... when you pitch this film to people when I was I remember when this film came out and we'd both seen it and we were banging I was banging on people to work at the time and they were like what's it about and I was like it's about travelling magazine sales people and then when you say that people just kind of look at you with glazed the eyes and they're like oh you and your art house stuff again is it but like it, there's something there's such an energy about this film um, that that can't really be described until you watch it and as you say the pace of this film is fantastic um, and yeah I, I, I've really got much more to add to, than what you said apart from the fact that American Honey uh, yeah my number seven yeah and, and it's an interesting thing that you said as well about you know how people sort of roll their eyes and say like are oh, you with your art house stuff because funnily enough like American Honey is actually this really quite commercially viable movie or I shouldn't say commercially mm. viable it's the wrong word like uh, it's quite accessible I would yeah. say it's you know when I'm I'm pushing to someone right now wrong then for example that's a harder sell than American Honey in the sense that once you let like once you press play and you get into it it's not difficult to just get swept up in what's going on and because we've got this soundtrack of all this kind of commercial uh yeah like I called it in my bit like just bangers of tracks that are whipping you through the the events of the film I think that um, I watched it for the second or third time um for myself with my wife and she was very much taken with the movie but just like you said if I'd said oh it's a film about a group of young people selling magazines on the road and it goes on almost three hours yeah. there would be absolutely <laughs> yeah. no chance yeah. so uh yeah yeah it's a it's a delight Number seven for me, then that's where we are, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Uh, number seven for me is one that has had plenty of awards, um, but I'm going to put it on my list regardless. This one is Moonlight from 2016 from director and co writer Barry Jenkins, uh, working alongside Taro. Alvin McCraney. Obviously, when we reviewed it on our show, we gave our full thoughts. Go back to that episode and check that out. I just, it sticks with me because a bit like Right Now, Wrong Then, you've got this perfectly structured movie, you've got it separated into three stages of the life of one person in this case, so we jump forward in time, particularly as we said at the time, I think that the exchanges that happen in the diner, in the tail end of the movie, in the third oh, part, oh, absolutely superb, yeah. are just stunning, like stunning feats of, of, of acting and, and, and performance and talent and an emotional kind of heft that um, is a rare thing. The the sequence with um, 
Mahashala Ali and the sort of baptism in the moonlight and in moonlight uh, black boys look blue and all that stuff will stick with you potentially for the rest of your life um, and it's you know all of that is to say that the director Barry Jenkins is a very special director I think um, and you know we've reviewed his stuff since and I think have been pretty glowing there as well so yeah it, I mean if anybody listen to this, listening to this has not caught up with Moonlight yet, it's this just lyrical, beautiful piece of um, just exquisite, uh, not even drama so much as it is like a, a character study over time that will really pull on your heartstrings without ever pandering in any way, I don't think. Um, and yeah, some good supporting performances here as well. Um, Naomi Harris is really good in it and completely transformed, as I'm sure people are well aware. So yeah, and, and Travante Rhodes, isn't it? The guy who plays the, the yeah. third version of, of the lead character is, is just a, f- a phenom in this thing. So yeah, um, Moonlight is my number seven. Cool. Right, one more before the break. Um, this is hard for me because I'm sitting there. Should I balance it around? Should I balance this around? What's going top five? What's not? Uh, but I'm sticking with it. I've written it down. It's happening. At number six for me is The Raid uh, from 2011, directed by uh, Gareth, a Welshman, Gareth Evans, um, despite the fact that it's in Thai, shot in Thailand, and, and features some incredible martial arts um yeah uh, for me just this film came out of absolutely nowhere and blew my fucking head off <laughs> um every time i watch the raid i um, it's like watching it for the first time over again i'm that excited every time i watch it um it's just an incredible piece of action cinema the fight scenes are nothing short of of fantastic i don't think it's been i don't think it's been bettered this decade um we've talked i don't think we've talked about this much on the podcast i think the sequel was great uh, but this film just came out of nowhere it was a breath of fresh air absolutely like uh, balls to the wall action film shamelessly entertaining from start to finish and with some of the best choreography i've, I've ever laid eyes on in all honesty uh, yeah. Pete, any thoughts? Yeah, just that. It's another one to say, like, I'm really glad it's on your list because it, it's, yeah, it's an incredible piece of work. And just like you, man, like, any time I jump back into it, because I must have seen it a few times since, uh, it, a bit like how I feel about the the latest version of uh, Judge Dredd, the movie Dredd, but yeah. The Raid is a better movie than Dredd. Like, I'll hold my hands up to that as much as I really, really love and potentially even overrate the film Dredd. Uh, yeah, The Raid is, is phenomenal and one that, you know, we've said about a couple of things, oh, maybe it's a difficult sell to people or it sounds this or that. If you sell someone on The Raid, it's so simple because if you like action movies, you'll love it. <laughs> if you yeah. like uh, gunplay, you'll love it. If you like sort of heart heart pounding action you'll absolutely love it so yeah the the raid's amazing and yeah i'm glad it's on your list and like if this stuff makes me want to do top 10 action movies of the decade top 10 comedies of the decade just so i can talk about more great stuff but we are limited by what we can do so i've got number six um again like you could have been top five i don't know at this point it is from this very year of our lord 2019 this is uh pedro almodovar's film pain and glory which is going to feature prominently on my 2019 end of year list i am sure uh again we've done a full review for most of these films bar the ones that take place sort of pre-2014 uh we 
we've done four reviews on the show. So uh, yes, Pain and Glory is a vehicle for Antonio Banderas to struggle through his uh, growing addiction to uh, heroin in the movie, which doesn't sound like the f- the, the most fun way to spend two hours. Uh, he in the movie is a guy who uh, made a film previously. He's made a few films, but he's made a film that's been picked up and sort of branded a cult classic. And he's requested to attend an event and a screening surrounding the sort of, um, I think there's like a new print or a new release or something like that of, of his film. But he has become quite reclusive and he's shy and there's something in his past that is holding him back from sort of progressing as a person. And what we get in the movie is also a filling in of the history of this character through flashbacks to his life as a boy where his mother, played by Penelope Cruz, and his father struggled to bring him up with very limited means uh, for a chunk of his childhood living in what essentially is a cave with like a metal grate to uh, keep out rain, <laughs> which it obviously <laughs> it, it is not successful in doing. Um, it, 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 yeah. I'm going to gush uncontrollably about this when we get to the 2019 end of year list. So I'll keep this relatively brief, but it's, I, I will, I will argue right here and right now that this is top five Pedro Modavar films of his entire career. Um, I think that it has a, um, an impact that, that I, I really didn't expect. Like I've been used to good to middling old Modavar stuff over the last few years um, and then I just felt like this, but maybe because it, maybe it resonates with me personally. I don't know. Maybe because we're introduced to the character who, who introduces himself to the audience by talking about all his physical ailments and the way in which he's got in touch with himself through the limitations of his own body, which is something that once you hit about thirty-four or five, I reckon is something that's fairly uh, universally understood by everybody in that age bracket. So, yeah, so many good things to say about Pain and Glory. It is just got such a beating heart at the center of it and um yeah the moment with the fireworks is probably my favorite sequence of the entire year uh pain and glory is my number six yeah it's, it's a good pick to be fair i think it's, it's a great film um from what i remember of it i really liked it i'll be honest it's one of those ones where you know you go and sit in the cinema and you're like should i be going to the cinema or am i too tired to be in the cinema and annoyingly for me it was one of those ones where i was probably a touch too tired to be in the cinema so I'll be honest, I saw most of it, but I wasn't, it was drift, sort of drifting in and out. And there's one particular cinema in Bath, I won't name it, that is so hot all of the time. So it's quite difficult. So I need to rewatch this and I intend to rewatch it. The gist I got of it, it was very, very good. I think at the time when we reviewed it, I was honest when we reviewed it, this has happened. And I know Antonio Banderas was incredible in it. So yeah, I think it's, it's a good pick, Pete, to be fair. It's a good pick. Um, but that brings us to the break, does it not? And after it this does. break, we will be back with our top five not top ten there's only five left now top five films of the decade and we are back so the second half approaches rapidly paul we're gonna have to go from five to one in the top films of the decade top 10 in total top five after the break that we've just had um this is you know the business end it's the most difficult part it's the most agonizing part but it should also be the most enjoyable part as we celebrate some of the greatest cinematic works of the last 10 years before that let's throw in a couple more honorable mentions so what else has sprung to mind didn't quite make your top five or even your top 10 but you wanted to throw out some love for on this show uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive, uh, which I completely forgot when putting this list together because that came out in 2011. I had that my, my mind as being much earlier than that. So yeah, Nicholas Winding Refn's Drive definitely is another honourable mention for me. 
Um, something else I wanted to throw into the mix was Holy Motors um, from Louis Carax from 2012. That film absolutely blew my head off and certainly has stayed with me in terms of just how beautiful it was visually and some incredible set pieces in there. Uh, Phantom Thread from 2017, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, that was close to making this list, um, which I thought was was great um, and definitely rewards repeat viewings. Um, I'm just trying to think what else I've got here. Beasts of the Southern Wild from 2012 as well. That's another film that I keep meaning to rewatch because at the time it, it really, really struck a chord with me. I haven't seen it twice yet. Maybe if I'd seen it twice... It would peak up on this list. Um, yeah, but we, we that's an interesting it. one. It's too late With now. Beast of Southern uh, Wild, it's an interesting one because I, I feel like the general, not that this has to have any impact on, on sort of your own feelings, obviously, but the general critical consensus has kind of tailed off a bit on that film, I think, since it's all the buzz around its release. Um, I, mm. I think I've only seen it the once as well, and I liked it. I thought it was visually really interesting. I, I maybe didn't, beyond that surface, I don't know that it had a lasting impact on me, but... Um, other ones that I wanted to throw out, um, this may or may not come up in the rest of the list, I don't know. Mad Max Fury Road, I don't know how that isn't on my list, but it isn't. Um, Upstream Colour uh, is is a work of genius, and I've had it in the top ten for a long time. Uh, Patterson um, was, was great, and one of my films of the year that it came out. Stories We Tell, the Sarah Polly documentary, has got to be one of the documentaries of the decade, without any shadow of a doubt. Uh, the Act of Killing and The Look of Silence kind of go together. Um, uh, Tree of Life, um, yeah, Cold War, um, Manchester by the Sea, I think I mentioned earlier, Tower, the, another documentary that would get on my top 10 docs of the uh, of the decade, Certain Women, um, which, uh, which I loved and talked about on our show, My Life as a Courgette has got to be one of the best animations of the last 10 years, I would argue, uh, Tony Erdman, which is a, a a film I'd yeah, love really to go good. back to. It's I think really I've good. only seen that the once in the uh, in the cinema, but loved it so much when, when we saw it then. Um, Her of course um, things like The Master and Whiplash and Inside Lou and Davis uh, The Witch I think maybe you mentioned at the top of the show Before Midnight which was such a great end to that trilogy um, It Follows uh, Certified Copy I think I've done The Image Book I mean there's so many man like we said at the beginning it could go on forever but it won't because we are going to nail down our top five I wanted to throw in Florida. I want to throw Florida Project some love as well because that came close to my top ten. In fairness, yeah. Sean Baker's Florida Project that came very, very close, but it's similar in some ways to American Honey, which is probably why it didn't it didn't edge into the, the top ten, but still a great film. But anyway, sorry, well, Pete, I was saying, what did edge into the top five? Why don't you kick us off with your number five, Paul? My number five is uh, Blade Runner 2049, directed by Denis Villeneuve. And the only reason it was, I was to very hard to pick between this and Sicario, to be honest. Uh, very, very hard to pick which one was going to make the list. Uh, in an ideal world, if I hadn't set myself to a film per director, they'd have both been in my top ten, I'll be honest. So there you go. Uh, but yeah, Blade Runner 2049, I my expectations weren't, uh, when this was announced, I think everyone's expectations were like, oh my word, what are Hollywood doing, doing a sequel to Blade Runner this many years later? Um, it won't work why are they doing it uh, but they got Danny Villeneuve to do it who is by 100% the right man to do a film of this type I loved the fact that it maintained the slow measured pace of the original film um, it didn't try it didn't try to sort of up, upgrade or change it to a more action focus um, it was deliberately slow paced um, the, the effects work and the visuals in the film the cinematography um, is just absolutely second to none the film looks absolutely staggering it sounds fantastic and I just think this the story for me 
still resonates. I really like Ryan Gosling in this. There were a lot of people said that this was one of the faults of the film. For me, this is almost is nigh on flawless sci-fi. Um, and obviously, the context of watching it on my stag do with with all of my close friends, uh, some of which stayed awake and some of which didn't, uh, obviously ad- added something to this for me. But yeah, for me, nigh on flawless sci-fi, and one of the many reasons that I think Denny Villeneuve is one of the finest directors working today. And I'm incredibly excited for Dune next year, for sure. Nice. Yeah, I thought it would get in there. I wasn't sure what position it yeah. would get, but I, I thought it would get in there. In there you knew it was coming, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, and it's streaming, I think, at the moment, isn't it? Blade Runner 2049. I think it's on Netflix. I think it moment. is, yeah. yeah. If, anyone has, if anyone hasn't seen it yet. I mean, it's in, don't get me wrong, it, it's in acquired taste. Like, and much like the original film is, but it, if it is to your taste, then it's superb and you should seek it out. Yeah, and treat yourself to like a massive televisual upgrade as well. Like go buy go buy yourself yeah. a, a huge rig and then watch that on the biggest thing you possibly can. Yeah. <laughs> um, number five for me, funnily enough, Paul, is a film that you just mentioned when you were talking about honourable mentions and that one is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's film uh, Phantom Thread from the year 2018. So just last year, the beginning of last year or early, of, early last year. Yeah. Um, this one was my film of the year last year, I believe. Um, it is, it was. of course, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, and is it's difficult to say is this his best work, one of his best works. I'm not sure, and I don't know if I even want to have the conversation. I've gone through so much for this list already. Uh, maybe at some point we'll do a, a PT Anderson top top five or ten or whatever. Uh, the answer to that question is there will be Bud Peak, by the way. But hey ho. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the whole personal choice thing, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, but you might be right, and that's exactly why it's such a difficult decision. But, yeah. Um, yeah, you, you, you've got. Anyway, uh, I'm baiting you. I'm sorry. A, another, <laughs> another amazing performance from Daniel Day Lewis um, as this incredibly controlling, incredibly mannered, incredibly infuriating character, um, Reynolds Woodcock, who is a 1950s tailor who runs the tightest of ships in terms of dictating to everybody exactly how everything is to be done at all times. Um, he begins this uh, sort of professional slash personal relationship with the uh, character played by Vicky Creeps who is great in this movie uh, as we highlighted when we did our full review at the time and then of course you've got Leslie Manville who plays um, his sister is that right? Yes. Yeah, 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 in the movie. And they have very, very sort of barbed, spiky uh, back and forth between the two of them. Uh, the, the thing is, is so appealing to me, not only because it's well performed and not only because P.T. Anderson can, you know, shoot film better than almost anybody who, who's currently working, but because it's got such a distinct idea of what it's doing in terms of, all of the imagery of um, perfect tailoring matching up with the uh, very restricted sort of outwardly um, resplendent and inwardly kind of um, problematic personality of the guy at its centre. And then whenever there is a loose thread, something imperfect, it's a cause of such alarm and distress and this works on more than one level, I think, with the characters in the film. So, yeah, it's just one of those where um, you're in the hands of an absolute master, um, forgive the pun, and, um, <laughs> yeah, you can take your pick from a number of P.T. Anderson's films for his, his best work, but this is right up there, and I loved it, and I've seen it a few times now, and my love for it has not diminished. So that's why it's made number five on my list. 
Uh, number four from me is a film that we, I think we did a podcast on this. That don't, it worries me how long this podcast has been running for now, Pete, to be honest. It's when, you, when you look at what some of these films came out, and we're like, did we talk about this film? Did we, Pete, talk about Boyhood from 2014 on the podcast? Yes. I can't. Yes, oh, we did, didn't we? Well, yeah, was... yes. What happened with it is that you saw it, and I saw it way later than you by like a number of uh, months. Okay. So I think you'd already talked about it a bit, but I think more in like a, a popcorn, like a short form review rather than a full I one. I see. Yeah, that, that rings a bell, that rings a bell. But anyway, my number four is Boyhood, which is Richard Linklater's um, epic, epic project. Uh, finally saw the light of day in 2014. Um, this was shot over the course of 12 years, um, following Elal Coltrane's character, um, basically from his childhood to his arrival as a young man at college. Um, I just, I can't praise this film highly enough. This is one of those films that seems to be a weird backlash has appeared online against this film um, since it came out. And for the life of me, I have no uh, no understanding of why. I just think it, it's a really, really, really novel idea, really well put together. Um, and it's just it's just a very, very heartwarming tale of, of, of someone's life, really, of watching someone grow up. Um, and I have no idea why anyone out there could have anything other than love for this film, to be honest. Um, Pete, is this the fond memories of this? Yeah, fairly fond memories, Paul. It might even might even come again. Uh, <laughs> it might even come up. Sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I, just to to speak to the thing that you said about a potential backlash. I, I believe, or from my sort of perception of things, it is that um, maybe that the certain factor, factions believe that this is more sort of a technical achievement than it is an actually um, compelling drama. Perhaps um, that that maybe it's a, a gimmick rather than sort of a. Um, a great film in its own right it's not a read on this that i agree with at all but you know no, uh, those opinions are out there so make of those what you will and uh, yeah you, you have to make the decision for yourself ultimately and you have to live with this thing for a little while i think and maybe go back to it and see how you feel about I it. i think so yeah but for, for me it's just a, a beautiful heartfelt drama that's incredibly well put together and shouldn't work because it is such a technical accomplishment it shouldn't work and ultimately you know at what at some point what if the actors don't want to do it anymore what if this doesn't happen it's not something i've seen done before and I think it works It works remarkably well and I think it's one of Linklater's finest films for sure so yeah my number four is Boyhood nice my number four of all the things on this list I would say took me by surprise the most um, this is a film that I remember again um, you'd seen before I saw or before I caught up with it um, it's a film that released in the summer of 2018 so again just a year ago um, and this is Leave No Trace from Deborah Granick. Deborah Granick, co-writer and director on this thing, who, of course, established herself as a sort of name to watch with Winter's Bone. Um, the Leave No Trace, again, I've talked about it on our show, and the reason why it sticks with me so much, and actually a reason why Martha Marcy May Marlene didn't make the list, is I think if I have to pick one of the films that is about um, somebody who is struggling desperately to fit in or maybe isn't sure they even want to fit in in what is sort of perceived to be polite correct society then I would pick the Deborah Granick movie over that movie uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene and a reason for that you know could be that both Ben Foster and Thomas and Mackenzie who are this father and daughter duo at the film centre living off the grid are both so fantastic in the movie and have such clear natural chemistry with each other I mean I haven't seen behind the scenes stuff on Leave No Trace and you know maybe that will shatter my illusion but it seemed to me like those those two are probably 
you know, still very closely in contact with each other. I would expect after a, a set of performances like this, a pair of performances like this, and just to see um, the central character in the case of Ben Foster be this guy who has a certain way in which he wants to live and that certain way of living is threatened by forces beyond his control. Uh, a bit like we saw in something like Captain Fantastic, although that's so much more sort of whimsical than than this is. Um, and then having to face down the fact that maybe it's not just the constraints of society that are that he's running from. Maybe it's something darker and maybe it's something that will still be there no matter where he runs. So um, I think you get where I'm going with the thing because I tend to equate most pieces of drama with uh, some sort of thematic link with depression and loss. But I mean, that is exactly what this <laughs> is here. You've got a man yeah, who who knows that it doesn't really matter whether they find find another camp off the grid in the forest because the 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 uh what should i say like the ash in his blood for want of a better uh, expression is going to be there for the rest of his life and there's an exchange that takes place that i've talked about before on the show where um, daughter and father face each other having had the opportunity to live in a sort of a happy medium kind of a place a middle place where they'd be living in a in a community a sustainable self-sustaining community amongst other people with a human contact that the foster character so clearly needs in his life and will so clearly benefit him and he goes to leave and he's going to walk away and he's going to walk into the woods and he's going to leave his daughter and she runs after him and faces him and says not come back you have to come back I'm forcing you but I know you'd stay if you could and I I think that when we open the show by saying, you know, there are films that will resonate with you personally in a way that maybe with other people, those things don't hit so hard. I can't think of many lines of dialogue or exchanges in films in the 10 years that we're talking about that hits as hard as the line. <laughs> I know you would stay if you could. It's it's heartbreaking on a level that I can't yeah, quite ex express in words. So, um, yeah, Leave No Traces is phenomenal. And like... All I've said is before saying anything about how beautifully shot it is, how the nature in this movie looks amazing, how the sound design brings that nature to life. Um, it, it's a, it's an absolute gem. It could be even higher than it is, but it's my number four. Cool. Uh, my number three. Uh, do I move this around or not? No, I'm not going to. Yes, I am going to. My number three is Amour from 2012, uh, directed by one of my favourite directors, Michael Haneke. Um I have seen this twice. Christ knows why I sat through this film a second time. Because if I mean, I if this is one of those films. So the the premise of this film is that you have uh, a retired couple, uh, one of which has a stroke and their love is severely tested. Um, and it's directed by everyone's favourite sort of misery man of misery, Michael Haneke. Um, yeah, to recommend this to say you will enjoy this might be would certainly not be true. Um, it's uh, it's a very very hard watch, and I think we came out of the, came out of this in the cinema from the cinema with my now wife, and we went and sat in the pub for a good half an hour, and we're still crying. I think if I remember rightly, I was crying from about halfway through and just didn't stop until the end of this film. 
That being said, as much as I can't recommend it as a piece of entertainment, for a film to be able to do that to people, to evoke that level of emotional reaction, is an incredible accomplishment. And as much as this is not an easy watch, it is an absolutely magnificent piece of filmmaking um, that that really, really should be seen by as many people as into film as they possibly can. The performances uh, are fantastic. Um, and yeah, it's Michael Haneke, for me, probably at the peak of his powers. I just thought it was yeah, absolutely heartfelt absolutely brilliant and savage drama um but yeah an impeccable piece of filmmaking in my opinion pete any thoughts on this do you remember you don't forget this once you've seen it <laughs> yeah no yeah i mean well done yeah because a lot of your picks are really uh sort of bringing back memories for good or bad i don't know about the the ways in which i, I felt <laughs> when i saw these things but uh yeah and more for the first time in the cinema was quite something um also because of the fact that when you see it this movie you had the chance like you did like i did to see it in a, a theater you also get the residual reactions of other people around you. So it's not just your own yeah. sadness and your own um, the disquiet in yourself, but it's also hearing, you know, a complete stranger sort of whimpering or or blubbing behind you as as the events play out. So yeah, uh, I was a lot a lot um, more vociferous in my praise of this than I was uh, Happy End, I think, which is the most recent Hanukkah movie if I'm not mistaken but um yeah correct yeah really really good like because you said at the beginning Paul like uh it, it maybe isn't an easy recommendation of something that you're going to enjoy but to be honest and I know that you would you would feel the same way I don't know that there's much value in that when people think that you know all film should be entertainment or entertaining or amusing or you know whatever whatever because I think that they're in the right hands I think going through something like Amor on your own or with a loved one is an experience that is really quite enriching even though it is mm. terribly sad well it's interesting what you say about about seeing it in the cinema because it's one of the few films where i'd say no one left until about three quarters of the way through the credits most mm. people and just people just couldn't because and then like we as i said we just sat in the pub just just crying and like are you okay i'm like no not really uh, and i managed to watch it twice and i to be honest it elicited exactly the same reaction the second time around and i think if i were to watch it again i'd still be in bits from from halfway through to the end but yeah i just think it's an incredible piece of work the um the charlotte rampling moving movie hannah from this year is not quite on the on the level i don't think of a more but has a similar um tone in terms of the um the sadness of uh um mortality uh, let's say so uh, i would recommend that to, to someone who's looking for something along these lines if if you like that sort of thing or you know if, yeah. if you are enriched <laughs> by that sort of thing uh, number three for me then on this countdown is from the year 2014 2013 it says here i think maybe we got it in 2014 yeah uk 2014 uh, it is jonathan glazer's movie under the skin um under the skin we've said a lot about on the show already but at the center you've got scarlett johansson she comes to earth she's some sort of alien figure but she's got the body of a human being and what a body and what a face so everybody is entranced by her and they're entranced to their own demise she sort of prays there's like a praying mantis type figure who it's like uh, a thinking man species isn't it Pete? <laughs> it, it very much is a sort of art house thinking man species yes um and it you know it's got this incredible soundtrack that's got all this kind of scratchy itchy discordant stuff on it that makes you feel thoroughly uncomfortable you've got a mesmerizing central performance from scarlett johansson you've got the ideas in the film which will unsettle you in ways that few films have over the last decade if i'm honest not least the once a man's lured the way in which he meets his end in that kind of um airless liquid place um where men turn into skin sacks that then explode and sort of float <laughs> through nowhere 
um yeah you know, you can understand the film on, I think, a, f- a couple of different levels. And I think it is one of those that maybe requires a little more investment on the part of the viewer than some of the other stuff that's come up on the list for, for either of us, I think. But if you give it the time and if you're not one of those people who'll sort of start rolling your eyes 15 minutes into a movie if it hasn't absolutely grabbed you straight away, there's so much to the movie, I think. There's so much to um, the sense of looking at what it's like to take the humanity out of a human being and maybe just maybe without reaching too much that's something that's important for people to do um, in the year 2019 and beyond so um, yeah massive recommend Jonathan Glazer's incredible uh, seek it out if you haven't seen it so far uh, yeah I think under- it would have hit my hit my top 20 for sure I, I love it I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. with you Pete I think it's a fantastic film and, and talk about ways to end your film as well I mean yeah. I mean you know like you said at the end of a more like everybody sat in the cinema 15 minutes and I can't say that happened you know in the screening which I saw under the skin but like what happened for me was just that thing that I try to talk about on the show whenever it comes up where a film ends and you feel different almost like you feel different as a person after certain films end and this happens to me maybe once or twice a year I think this mm. year the film where I felt that most profoundly maybe is the old Madafar film Pain and Glory which was on the list but when it happens oh boy it's a treat and and what happens at the end of this which won't talk about here it, yeah it, it just left me kind of staggered and different so um yeah that's why it's my number three under the skin what have you got next Paul uh number two for me is you were expecting this on the list somewhere Pete I'm sure this is Mad Max Fury Road um from 2015 um we saw this in IMAX together and both of us just looked at each other at the end of the film and we were like holy fuck that was something, wasn't it? Like, it's just... I mean, no one expected this to be good, let's be honest. Everyone was cynical of this coming out. They're like, what are they doing? It got re- re-shot, re-delayed, re-shot, delayed, re-shot, I think, countless times. Um, Tom Hardy, I believe, went on record and said he didn't really know what was going on on set because of just so much going on. He had no idea how the film was going to turn out. Um, but what a success it is in terms of... It, for me, is the ultimate, almost the ultimate in action cinema. It's up there with the very greats. I mean... The, the pace of the film is incredible. Uh, you could criticise its lack of story, but I think that's missing the point of this. This is this is a shameless, shameless, thoroughly entertaining theme park ride and uh, an incredible big screen experience. I mean, the practical effects are second to none um, in terms of... I remember sitting there... I remember watching it thinking, oh my God, the model works. It's incredible. The scene where the tanker explodes. I'm like, this is, this is so good. I want to see the behind-the-scenes stuff to see how they did it. And you see the behind-the-scenes stuff, and when you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff, you just get even more excited about the film because it's not a model, Pete. They blew up a fucking oil tanker. They just did it. Like, and just there's just something about this film that is just absolutely spectacular like it's just in 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 a day in a in the days where we're using more and more cgi um to to do more and more things it just goes to show that with effort and money um you can still pull off epic epic stunts um with practical effects and i just think it's it's probably arguably the best film in the series although it's very arguably the best film in the whole series and I really like the first two so um, yeah I think this Mad Max Fury Road is, is just absolutely superb it's absolutely one of my highlights of the decade uh, if not of my movie going life in terms of in terms of an actual cinema experience um, it probably is one of my favourite all time cinema experiences Pete I know you, you love this because you were right there next to me so. yeah yeah, and it's one of those again that um, just before we're going to do the list I'm like how have I not put that in my top 10 because like it, it depends you know like we said at the beginning it's a big stress like what metric are 
we're using and stuff. But like, yeah, thinking about the sort of pure uh, adrenalized like thrill of the whole thing. And it's important to point out, at least from my side of this conversation, this is the most metal film released in the last ten years. Like, yeah, <laughs> your I, I would I would venture that you're slightly irritating, slightly um, clever, clever sort of introverted. Um, uh, friend thinks that that film is Mandy. It isn't. It's this one. You know, there are things going for Mandy. It's got an absolute banger of a soundtrack, but this one, the the flames coming out of a flying V guitar on the front of a vehicle shooting through the yeah, desert. Amazing, but yeah. not just that. Like almost every aspect of this movie is like it, it, metal. So yeah, for that I love it, and for so much more I love it as well. Um, it, yeah, it's amazing, and I I remember even though like you pointed out there's not like a massive load of story here i remember almost every sequence of the movie now even though i've seen it yeah two or three times max at this point so mm. mad max um, so uh yes <laughs> i nearly went there beat, beat great it. great choice uh number two for me on this list you've already talked about paul so i'll keep it relatively brief this is boyhood from 2014 um what i just talked about when i finished speaking about under the skin is that thing like the movie ends and you feel different i don't mind i'm not too proud to say that i went to see boyhood on my own my um then fiance girlfriend i'm not sure girlfriend i I would get yeah girlfriend in 2014 uh same person throughout um had been unable to come i'm not sure something work or something got in the way and i went to see the film on my own just around the corner and when i came home i walked into the house and she was doing something in the kitchen and i walked up to her and i just gave her a hug for a long time and she was like are you okay I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm great. I'm fine. I, I can't explain it better than that. Like, the film, as anybody who's paid even a little bit of interest knows, uh, charts the story of one boy growing from. I think in the beginning he's what, like, eight, seven. Yeah, he's eight, I think, at the beginning. Because he's 12 years. He's about 20 by the time the film ends. 20, 21, yeah, I think. Got, so, yeah, he's gone off to college sense. by the time it ends. So, yeah, we start with yeah. this little kid. The same little kid is uh, throughout this movie. Ella Coltrane, I should say, is that guy. Uh, is filmed in stages that are then chronologically stitched together. And like you said when you were talking about it, they sort of reconvene to shoot these sections. And the fact that that holds together at all is massive credit to the team here and to Richard Linklater, of course, as writer-director. But then the fact that it manages these moments also, I think, of like emotional impact. If I think about the bit at the kitchen table where uh, Patricia Arquette's character is looking like she's just completely shattered, and the reason for this is not just because she is tired, very tired, but because her boy uh, is going off to college and she says, I just thought there would be more. And she's summarising the like this massive vacuum left over, this loss that she's feeling because not only has she spent all this time with this guy, this young guy, this growing young man, but we as the audience have as well. And we've had this window into the childhood years of an individual. I've never had that before. I don't have any children. I haven't watched my children grow. So it's an exceptionally interesting thing from that point of view. And then you've got the like even darker i guess in a film like boyhood which is not not the darkest of projects i guess but the darker stuff like with the um alcoholic father stepfather figure which i found really troubling and again it's because you invest so much 
in the Ella Coltrane character that you really care what happens to him. When he arrives at college and goes out, you know, like getting high and, and, and chatting away about the life and sort about life and sort of the universe and everything to these people that he's meeting, you feel with him the things that he's feeling to a decent degree, I think. And in that case, you're relating to the fact that you too have been 18, 19 years old and gone off to college. But uh, yeah. And I think, yeah, I think the the other reason you relate to him is because we kind of grew up at a similar time to when he was growing up, I guess. So you look at all this, you look at all this stuff, the the pop culture references and that kind of thing. They're all there. And I'm just, I remember that. I remember that. So that's always, that's quite, quite touching, really. Um, in in terms you see, if you see where I'm coming from there but no I, I'm t- totally with you yeah you, there is something very very relatable about him yeah um, and even even Hawk's parent character you know yeah absolutely yeah and and that's that's what I was going to say last of all is Ethan Hawke gives this amazing performance because we know Ethan Hawke from the Linklater stuff in, in particular the the sort of uh, before trilogy but uh, what he is here I think is is one of my favourite sort of iterations of Ethan Hawke, I guess, because he's this guy that you kind of imagine Ethan Hawke to be. Like, he would be a really fun dad. He'd be really fun to be around. He's kind of rock and roll. He's kind of got an edge to him, but he's also, like, unreliable, and he's also kind of uh, thoughtless, and he's also kind of absent, and all those things are embodied in this character. So, yeah, so impressed by it at the time. And that um, Family of the Year track, uh, Hero, is, is one that even now, if I put that on again, it makes me feel a lot of the feelings that I felt when I saw this for the first time, what, back five five years ago or whatever it was. So, yeah, Boyhood is my number two on this list of the decade. This brings us to number one, I think. This does bring us to number one. And my number one, I think it's one of the few times where I've walked out of the cinema after just under 90 minutes and thought, you know what? That film, for me, was perfect. And I very rarely say that about a film. I've seen this film... I think four or five times since I originally watched it when it came out last year. That film, Pete, is Pavel Pawlowski's Cold War, which, as you know, I can... I've got goosebumps just thinking about the film, just talking about it now. I I have not loved a film this much in such a very long time. I think that the performances... um, So the, the, the premise of this film is it's set during the Cold War um, in Poland, in communist Poland, it's set during the 1950s. A music director falls in love with a singer and tries to persuade her to flee to flee communist Poland for France. Um, you've got Thomas Katz, Thomas Kott, sorry, who plays the director, and Joanna Kulig, uh, who plays the singer. Um, and the film basically follows their, their kind of on and off love affair over the course of about 20 or 30 years, I think. Um, but it's just, and I think you said this at the time, Pete, so I'm going to quote you here, it's a lot of what works for this about this film for me is what you don't see, um, the, is the gaps in it. It, it. it doesn't take you by the hand. There are big gaps in the in these character stories and you are allowed to fill in those gaps for yourself. Like the, the jumps in time work, work incredibly well um, and it doesn't lead you by the hand. And, and I think that is, is one of the film's strengths. And I think a lot of people I speak to about this film, they're like, "Oh, a, 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 you know, a film in the a film in the the Polish language. It's good. It's like a there's going to be a three-hour art house film. It's not. It's ninety minutes. It's such a tight film. There is no wasted time in this film at all. Like at all. Um, the cinematography is just absolutely staggering. It's beautiful, stunningly shot in black and white. Absolutely stunning. The music, absolutely fantastic. Joanna Kudlig uh, can not only act incredibly well in this, but she also sings remarkably well too. And just this film just stays with me and every time I watch it it re- for me reinforces just what an incredible piece of work it is um, I personally think it's better than Ida which is, seems to go against a lot of the uh, a lot of the grain but I liked Ida enough but I thought Cold War was was a superior film and by far and away as I said 
one of the very few times I've come out of the cinema and thought that was perfect. It could do, it could do, it can do absolutely no wrong in my eyes. Uh, I noticed this was on your honourable mentions. Anything to add to that? Or yeah, no, I just I, I agree. Really, I think it's an incredibly accomplished piece of work. It looks like a sort of timeless. It's got this timelessness about it because it's set in the Cold War, but it's it feels like this sort of capsule of time. Um, everything about it has sort of captured moments perfectly and like you said there are gaps between those moments and there are things left unsaid or left unshown uh, to the audience uh, which is such a strength of the movie I think and then the moments that are captured are captured in this like picture perfect way in terms of not only framing and performance but also just like the the look of individual scenes is this thing in is it in 4-3 yeah, I think it's academy ratio, so not quite four three. But right. Yeah, very close the framing to of the framing, yeah, the framing of the um, the shots is is just nothing short of incredible. So some of the song and dance routines, some of the outfits that Joanna Cooley's character wears in this, just staggeringly beautiful. Mm. Like every, it's one of those few films where every shot could be a painting. Yeah. Like I'd quite if someone said to me, here is a shot of every still from here's here's a shot of every still a still from every scene of Cold War I'd be like right I'm finding a frame for every one of those photos and that is just going to decorate my house forever yeah like it's you would, you would look a little bit pack. Cold War obsessed if you uh, if you had every frame of the movie <laughs> yeah perhaps you would perhaps you would um, I, before before we get to your number one I also just want to mention the end of this film as well and again I'm not going to spoil the end here but again it's like there's a handful of films which I think we possibly talked about we talked about last week I think when we were talking about The Irishman um, there are certain films where you sit there and go right if this film ends on this shot then that is the perfect ending Cold War is one of those films that ends exactly where it should end and you're just like oh my god that was amazing anyway you can probably tell I quite like Cold War I'm going to shut up now Pete and let you uh, tell us what your favourite film of the last decade is. Well, Paul, w- would you believe it? When we, In a year in which we're debating whether anybody should make a film that's over three hours long, both of us have opted for 90-minute movies and both of us have opted for uh, <laughs> non-standard ratioed films. Uh, number one for me is from the year 2017. It is a ghost story from David Lowry. This was probably fairly predictable, I guess, as my pick because when I set out the top ten as things that impacted me the most, uh, yeah, this this is going to be up there. I I just won't hear the back like any of backlash about like oh the the one scene at the kitchen table is irritating. I think it's entirely deliberate. But anyway, I'm not here to fight against critics of the movie. The point being that this decade, when we started the list, we said you know, what were we doing 10 years ago, right? What were we doing at the beginning of the decade and maybe what significant things have happened since? And for me, however I cut this, uh, the beginning of the decade for me was characterised by um, moving countries twice and the breakdown of a long-term relationship. And that had a massive impact, I think, on on so many aspects, not only of my, um, you know, living situation, working situation and so on, but also on my uh, mental health, my state of mind, my connection to sort of who I was and, and who I thought I was. And then years down the line where I feel I'd got to a much more gra- like mm, much more leveled out place a much happier more content place new relationship you know uh, lots of things set in motion and so on along comes this film from David Lowry in which it sounds like if you read around the movie uh, Lowry's had a sort of existential crisis and panicked about his own mortality and the um, sort of fleeting nature of human relationships and how they can just dissolve and people are forgotten and people are left behind and he made this film sort of in um, in almost secret 
with the cast, the small cast that he has here, Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara amongst them, of course, uh, about the fears and feelings that he was going through at the time. And the two things that I've said there just intersected perfectly because I was in a place where I felt like I could handle this stuff reasonably well, uh, but also in a place where the kind of wounds and feelings and fears of that time in my life, sort of circa about 2011, 2012, were still fresh enough in my mind that the film spoke to those. And so when you've got this, I mean, people know, I think, by this point that a ghost story is about the the death of a partner in a relationship, the death of the character played by Casey Affleck, who comes back into the life of his partner, Rooney Mara, in the form of basically a sheet, but a, a ghost, uh, if you will, uh, go along with the idea that the, the eye holes in the sheet uh, constitute a ghost. And, and he is there, but he's not there. He's there, but he's painfully absent. And he lives on through what he did. So conversations, memories of conversations, the music that he was recording, that one track, um, I Get Overwhelmed, which, yeah, people can call sort of the worst kind of indie wank if they want. But if you feel the way I feel about this movie, that thing, oh, it's, it's tough to even listen to. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it all, and of course, you know, people at the time talked a lot about the uh, the sort of personal emptiness sequence in which Rooney Mara is trying to get over this death by eating an entire pie in, in one shot. Um, but for me, it's not necessarily even that scene. It's things like two ghosts looking at each other from across the way and one saying to the other, I don't think they're coming back. And then that ghost who has that realisation that no one's coming back and there's nothing to reconnect with just disappearing, falling to the ground, uh, collapsing into nothing. And then the motif in the movie about a message, a message that's passed on in the house. Why do you love this house so much? It hasn't got as much history as you think. Um, and the digging away at this wall that the ghost does to try to find out what it was that his love, his wife, his partner said to him or wanted to say to him over time. Um, yeah, I, I could talk about it for an hour and I won't do that because this entire show shouldn't be much longer than an hour. But I'm so glad you've brought that up, Pete, because I've looked, I was prepping earlier. I looked at my note card. So I use these little revision card things now that people will be familiar with. And there's like four different cards that have all got the films on. It's like top 10 of top 10 of the decade, top 10 of the decade. And on each card, there's one film title that I've written with such bad handwriting, I couldn't read what it was. And as you said, a ghost story, I was just like, shit, <laughs> that's what it was. So thank you. I'm so glad it's there. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you, you know, I think you were... Because it is incredible. I completely yeah, we, agree we were on the same page with this. Absolutely superb. Because, because yeah. yeah, you've got the small story, uh, you know, resonant, powerful, emotional story. But then you've also got the stuff that happens where Lowry incorporates this kind of sci-fi-ish um, or at least kind of um, visually creative uh, way of displaying the passage of a great deal of time, which could mm. have come across so cheesy or underfunded or sort of rickety. And I, I just think the complete opposite is true. And then, you know, little touches we've talked about before, like having repeated motifs of music in different mm. periods of time that link them together. It's an incredibly intelligent piece of work. It's a heartfelt piece of work. And it's what I want from a filmmaker, really, is just, is just bleeding out your heart into what you're doing you know um not every film is going to be a ghost story not every film is going to be a sort of introverted shoegazy 90 minute study of existential crisis but 
the same thing applies. You know, whether it's Mad Max Fury Road, where clearly the filmmakers have said, this is the best thing, this is the most heartfelt thing we can do with this material, and here it is. You know, all across the spectrum, that's what I hope for from filmmaking. And I'm glad that in this last decade, we've had a number of examples on both sides of the conversation where obviously that's happened, and obviously those films have connected in, in the way that they have, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think Ghost Story is fantastic. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. I'm on board. I'm on board. Do you want to do a little recap of the 10? Do you have them there to hand? Uh, I do have them there. I just need to make sure they're in the right order because I was messing around with the order as they as we were saying them. So I'm going to try with this. Okay. Uh, I think it's as it should be. Uh, I also need to get up and put a light on because I can barely read what I've put. It's quite dark in this room now. I noticed. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, number 10, uh, you have uh, Christopher Nolan's Interstellar from 2014. Uh, and number 9, Snowpiercer by Bong Joon-ho from 2013. At number 8, American Mary from 2012 by the Soska Sisters. At number 7, I believe, was The Raid from 2011 by Gareth Edwards. And number six was Boyhood from 2014 by Richard Linklater. Uh, number five, Blade Runner 2049 uh, by Denny Villeneuve. That might be number four. I might swap them around, so apologies, listeners. Uh, and number four is American Honey from 2016, directed by Andrea Arnold. Uh, number three was Amore from 2011, directed by Michael Haneke. Uh, number two, Mad Max Fury Road from 2015, George Miller. And number one... Cold War from 2018, directed by Pavel Pawlowski. Nice. There we go. I have then at number 10, uh, as you also have on your list, uh, American Honey from Andrew Arnold. At number 9, Asghar Fahadi's movie A Separation. At number 8 is the Hong Sang Soo drama Right Now, Wrong Then. Um, at number 7 is Moonlight from director Barry Jenkins. At number 6 is Pain and Glory from Pedro Almodovar. Then getting into the top five, I had Phantom Thread from Paul Thomas Anderson at five. Leave No Trace from Deborah Granick at four. Under the Skin from Jonathan Glazer at three. Uh, number two was Boyhood from Richard Linklater. And number one, David Lowry's movie, A Ghost Story from 2017. That brings us to the end of our top 10 films of the decade, a list that is so changeable that by the time we you know, get to the end of today, we might have shuffled all the films around. But the point being, it was such a pleasure to talk about the films that we did talk about and to look forward to doing another big list in terms of our top 10 films of this year, 2019, which will be coming very, very soon for your listening pleasure. In addition to that, this week, we're going to be putting up this episode and we're also going to be putting up an episode where we review the movie... Uh, uh, marriage Story from Noah Baumbach, which may well feature possibly in end of year consideration as well. Um, and in that episode, we'll be counting down our top five comedies of 2019. But that's about all from me, Paul. Anything to add before we round this one off? No, find us on social media. Uh, if you like what you hear, then by all means, give us a share. Please tell us what you think of our picks of the decade. Tell us what your picks of the decade were. Tell us if you think we're wrong. We will come back at you undoubtedly. But yeah, let us know. Uh, but yeah, find us on social media at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, Strangers Cinema on Instagram and all the other social medias you can imagine. But yeah, thanks for listening and we'll be back soon. <laughs>